Well, good evening, everybody. How are we doing? I want to show you some pictures of not only what I feel to be one of the greatest pieces of architectural build that has ever gone on in human history, but also some of the greatest pieces of art that the human eye has ever seen. Uh, this is the Sistine Chapel. I don't know if you've heard of it. It was built in the mid-1400s, uh, almost 600 years ago. It literally is the Pope's home church. Uh, it is a spiritual center. It is the spiritual center of the Vatican, and it is the spiritual center for literally millions and millions of Catholics around the world. It's really an unbelievable building. This is the inside of the chapel. This is their auditorium. I mean, can you imagine doing church in this place? I mean, this is like a whole new level, isn't it? Um, and I don't know if you could tell from these little pictures of the inside here that it is the entire part of the sanctuary, the chapel portion, is literally a series of paintings. They call them frescoes, and they tell the story of God from the very beginning of the scriptures to the very, very end. They, they paint a picture of the Bible. And while many famous people contributed to these works, it's almost hard to believe this, but all of the upper walls and the entire ceiling of the structure was created in the mind and the vision and through the hand of one single man. His name is Michelangelo. Have you ever heard of him? Clearly, clearly, a master. And many people feel that the centerpiece, people who really study this stuff and love this stuff, feel like the centerpiece of this and the masterpiece, if you will, of the entire work is found in the dead middle of it. It is what was commonly called the painting of, of the creation of Adam, God and Adam in the middle of the Sistine Chapel. Uh, maybe you've seen this painting before. Have you seen this? It really is a masterpiece. It is the center, Michelangelo says, for everything that was to come after. It is the centerpiece of human history to him. Uh, if you look very carefully at this painting, you'll notice that the figure of God is extended toward man with great effort, right? He twists his body to move as close as to man as humanly possible as is possible. Uh, his head is turned toward man. His eyes are, are fixed. Are, 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 his gaze is fixed on, on the man and God's arm is, is stretched out and his index finger is, is pointing literally toward the man. It's like every muscle in his body is taught. It is, it is extending toward him. He, he's rushing toward Adam on a cloud. Now, we would think oftentimes that clouds are pictures of um, just kind of like a slow and uh, lazy sort of a picture scape. But in the 1400s and the 1500s, this was painted in 1508, by the way, 1508. And, and back then, a, pi a, a picture of a cloud denoted something very different than it denotes today. It denotes in Michelangelo's mind, uh, uh, it, it says it's a power. It says it's a purpose, that, that it's divine in nature. And so this picture shows the God of the universe coming, rushing in on what Michelangelo calls a chariot of heaven, a cloud, a chariot of heaven, in order to come and be with man. It, it's, it's as if even in the midst of all of the splendor of heaven, God himself, with his entire being, is wrapped up in this impatient desire to come and fill the gap between himself and his creation. He can't wait to connect with man. He can't wait to, to come together as, as one. And if you notice in the picture, God comes within a hair's width of touching Adam. 
Now this painting, again, is called the, traditionally been called the creation of Adam, but, but many people who love this stuff and study this stuff say that it should be called something else. They've, they've renamed it over the centuries, uh, the endowment of Adam, because they say Adam's already been given physical life. His, his eyes are, are already open. He's already conscious to, to what's going on around him. And one historian says it like this, and I love this. He says he is be, he's basically being offered a life with God. God is extending to him and offering him a life that he cannot have outside of knowing God. And this historian goes on to say it like this, that all of man's potential, physical and spiritual, is contained in this one timeless moment when God is reaching toward man. Now, one of the messages that Michelangelo wanted to convey um, is that God has this undeniable determination to be with the people that he's created, the person that he's created. He, he wants us to, to not only know God, but to literally do life with him, to touch God. Now, we're in this series, right? And it's called Gifts. We're a Christmas series. And we've been talking about how we have a father in heaven who, who is more than good to us, that he literally gives us gifts, that he's gracious toward us. And we, we've been talking about this idea that the greatest gift that God brings to us or gives to us is this gift called, anybody remember? Grace, this gift called grace. And we started off by saying that many of us who are people of faith, we understand what this idea of grace is, but I think we make it too small of a word because it is like the biggest word in the Bible. It's much more explosive than we give it credit for. We often think of this idea of grace as just the idea of God forgiving us, right? Amen, and God does forgive us. Anybody hear that? That God does give us grace through this thing called forgiveness. But it's way bigger than that. And it's way better than just that. Uh, if you remember a couple weeks ago when you walked into here, we did this silly little thing. I gave you all a label and I asked you to put a name tag on. Y'all remember this? And we had this name tag and we talked about how we were labeled in life, that we go through life carrying our past, carrying all these labels and, and we're identified as something. But, but the idea of grace is more than just forgiving us of our past. It's recreating us. It's moving us somewhere where we cannot move on our own. It is literally giving us a second chance, a new beginning, a redo in life that you can be a new creation, and you may remember this, but, but if you were here, we had this moment where, where we grabbed the label that we were wearing, and what do we do? We ripped it off, and remember that sound through the whole room? You all remember that? Now, this may sound silly or cheesy to you, but I really believe that was the sound of God's grace rushing into our lives, because God longs to reach into our life and says, I can recreate who you are. I can give you a new start, a new beginning, a new hope, a new direction. I can make you completely brand new if you want. This is grace. This is grace. And then if you were here last week, uh, Pastor Greg just killed it. I mean, he just brought the goods. I don't know if you were here for this, but he said this idea of grace is more than just forgiving us. It's more than just giving us a new identity. It is helping us to become that new identity. Now, let's just be honest. Anybody in the room ever say, you know what? I want to become something different, do something different, um, take a different direction in my life? Anybody ever say that? Come on, anybody? I hope so. I think a lot of us try to find these new pathways in life but you often find that you can't do it on your own. Anybody try to start something and didn't get very far with it? Come on. (laughs) Well, you can't get very far on your own. You need the grace of God to carry you, to help you, to empower you, to make you strong where you're weak. And Pastor Greg talked about this idea that God's grace is more than forgiveness, it's more than new identity, it is strength to help us become who you know God wants you to become. 
Well, this week, I want to take us in a different direction because I don't think we're through with this idea of grace. I don't think we're through with this idea of the gift that God gives us. This idea of grace, this might be the biggest thing of it all. That God, through this thing called grace, gives us the gift of his presence in our life. God literally wants to be with us. God's great gift to you and to me is that he wants to bridge this gap that often sits between you and God, between me and God. So this idea is that God is, is close. God is near. He's often closer than you even think or realize. And that's what I hope to go after again. Uh, I want you to look at this painting once more. Uh, God is reaching toward Adam. God is extending, but, but, but having come that close, it's, it's as if he allows Adam a little bit of space. And why is that, friends? He wants to give you the freedom of choice. Michelangelo is trying to convey this idea that God has done everything, that, that he is all around you, but all you have to do is move toward him. It's your decision, your direction that you have to decide, that you have to move. It's like, it's like if you ever gone to the store with your kid and like the kid's pushing the cart right behind you and you're like, if you just stop, your ankles are toast. Y'all know what I'm talking about, right? Because they're like, oh, what are you doing? It's this idea that God is closer than you think. And if you just stop and lift your finger toward him, you'll meet with him. He will run into you and you will run into him. He is closer than you think. In John's, John Ortberg's book, it's called God is Closer Than You Think, uh, Pastor John writes that, that Adam is way more to dis, uh, difficult to interpret than God is. Uh, he, he talks about how God is, seems very purposeful and very direct in what he's trying to do. But Adam, on the other hand, is very different. His arm is partially extended toward God. His body is reclined. It's almost like he's in a lazy position. He's leaning backwards as if to say, I'm not really sure I'm even interested in connecting with my creator. Maybe he, maybe he assumes, or Adam assumes in this picture that having come this far, God will complete the journey and God will be the one who makes the contact. God will be the one who makes the touch. Maybe, he, maybe Michelangelo uh, is saying that Adam doesn't have the strength or the where to fall, uh, for to, to go and to actually meet with God. But Michelangelo is clearly trying to tell us a message. He's saying that Adam, no matter what else you can understand or think about this photo, Adam, all he has to do, because God is so close, is all he has to do is lift one finger. All he has to do is move just a little bit toward God, and he will meet with God. You know, this fresco, this painting, this, this incredible masterwork, uh, it took Michelangelo over four years of intense labor to complete this. The physical demands on his body were nothing short of torturous. Every day, he was forced uh, for hour upon hour to look upwards or to recline on his back, uh, so much that he eventually lost most of his eyesight. He, he literally, because he was so intense and so close to his art the whole time for four straight years, that, that his eyesight began to diminish, and he said, I could only read by holding a piece of paper far from my eyes. He literally, this labor of love, this, this labor of love literally cost him his eyesight. He would lay on his back for hours and sometimes days at a time. He would order that food and water and toiletry would be brought up to him on the scaffold so that he could simply sleep when he wanted to sleep and work when he wanted to work. Sometimes he wouldn't come down for weeks at a time. One night, he was completely exhausted from his work. He was very discouraged. He was alone in his doubts. He was beginning to think, maybe this is too big for me. Maybe I can't complete what I thought God 
was calling me to complete. And he writes this. This is going to blow your mind. He writes this in his journal, just a very, very simple entry. He says, quote, I am no painter. Really? <laughs> really? He says, I am no painter. And for 500 years, 500 years, this no painter has drawn men and women like you and me, has inspired women and men like you and me closer to God. It's caused us to wonder, can this gap really be filled? Um, perhaps Michelangelo was actually not alone in his work. Uh, perhaps the God who was so near to Adam was actually so near to Michelangelo that God so consumed his thoughts, his mind, his vision, even his brushes, because God wanted his story to be told. Maybe God wanted and chose Michelangelo to tell this story of a God who came near to us, and all we have to do is lift a finger, that God is closer than we think. You see, when I look at this picture, and it's probably you as well, you're reminded that God came near, that God is just a breath away, that, that if we simply humble our hearts, and I know this sounds almost churchy, and it, it almost sounds cheesy, but God is simply a prayer way that if we humble our hearts and bow our souls, we will literally run into God. And friends, if you were to read through the pages of scripture, you, you would see that God speaks even to this very day, that God is still alive, God is still not silent. He, he, he speaks into this world. And if you were to go through the pages of scripture, you'll see that sometimes God uses a burning bush to speak. Sometimes he uses a dumb animal like a donkey to speak. Sometimes God comes in, in great ways through storms and rainbows and through downpours of water and downpours of fire from heaven. But other times, God just seems to whisper that he's almost silent, but he's still speaking toward us. Friends, he still speaks. And if you and I were careful to listen, you would hear God speak because God, he's not far. He still speaks in ordinary things like, like things like cooking and small talk, through storytelling, through making love, through fishing and tending animals and actually having pets. God speaks through that. Oh. And God speaks through the things that we love like cookies and shortbread and sweet corn and all the good things of life like music and books and movies and entertainment. God still speaks. He is near. Don't miss him. Have you ever been with somebody who is uh, freshly dating somebody new in their life? Anybody? They are obnoxious. They are so obnoxious. Let's just be honest here. These people, they can't shut up. It's all talking about him. All he's talking about is her. And Oh, she's so perfect. She's, he's so dreamy, right? And it's like, come ridiculous, right? I mean, it's like they just haven't had reality set in yet. Uh, have you ever been around like somebody who has, uh, has become a parent for the first time? Anybody? You know, back in the old days, when, when I was younger, we didn't have like all these phone things that carried all our pictures around. So we had a wallet and we had these little plastic things that you put pictures in. You get like eight or nine or 10 of them in your wallet and you'd go, hey, have I showed you my kid? And right now it's like a parent pulls up and says, hey, let me show you my kid. And there's like 252 photos and the kid's two days old, and they're all the same. They all look the same, right? Or then they get on Facebook. Come on, glory to God. They, they, they post on Facebook 14, 15, 18, 21 times in a day. Here's JoJo. Here's JoJo sleeping. Here's JoJo still sleeping. 
Two hours later, here's Jojo still sleeping. He is so cute. Isn't he cute? He is the cutest baby that God has ever created. Absolutely the cutest baby. Here's Jojo. He's still sleeping. He's still the cutest baby. But did you notice his arm? Looks just like all the other photos. No, no, no. His hand. His hand is different all of a sudden. Here's Jojo. He's still sleeping. He's still cute. His arm is still cute. But did you see him smile? And you're going, that is not a smile, mama. That is a baby who just passed gas. And there is a difference. (laughs) Right? You know what I'm talking about? You've seen this. And it's true. Like, parents, parents, they get kind of wrapped up in the moment. It's kind of crazy. I remember when I first had my babies, I was the same way any parent is. Because dads, listen to me, if you're a good dad, you're into your kid. You pay attention to your kid. That's what you do. It's part of who you are. And let me tell you something, friends. God, he pays attention to you. He's into the tiniest details of our life. It never grows old to him. God is filled with wonder and awe for every moment of your life that he's watching with bated breath about what you are going to do next. Not because you're better than everybody else. It is because you are his son. You are his daughter. He created you special to be his. That's why God pays attention to you. That's why God cares about you. Because he is a heavenly father who is loving and gracious and cares about his kids and the details of our lives. I, I picture God up in heaven. He's got like the latest iPad and he's got 19,000 pictures of me on the iPad. Like here's Jeremy trying to play Mr. Father, parent, and not the best sometimes. Here's Jeremy trying to sleep into the band a little bit and the angels are like bored silly and like, yeah, he's trying to slip into that tambourine thing, but he is in no band, I'm telling you that right now. But I love this guy, he's amazing. I love this guy, he's, he's awesome. The angels are bored silly, the angels are bored sif. And he's like, I just got 200 more, just 200 more right here. Here's Jeremy trying to play the preacher thing. He's not very good, but I love this kid. I am oh, head over heels over this kid because he is my kid. He is my kid. And that is the kind of God that we have. And friends, I want you to hear this and hear this very, very well. That the story of the Bible from beginning to end is not a story of, of, of humanity rushing after God. It's completely the opposite. It is the story of a God who created his children and his children are wandering and he is rushing after us. He is coming toward us. He is reaching toward us. He wants to be home with us. He's doing everything he can to be near to us. You see, the central promise of the Bible, this may come as a shock to some of you, it is not, I will forgive you, even though God forgives us, amen? I mean, if you turn your heart toward him in faith and genuinely repent of your sin, man, God is so good, he will forgive even all of the junk of your life, all of it, every bit of it. It's almost hard to believe. But that is not the central theme or or, or a promise of the scriptures. And the central theme and promise of the scripture is not that you will have life after death, even though the scripture says if you turn your heart and have utter dependence on him, that he will save you. He will give you a life beyond this life. That is definitely a promise of scripture, but it is not the central promise of scripture. You want to know what the central promise of scripture is? It's repeated almost from the first page to the last page. It is a promise that God will be with us. That no matter where you go, He will be with you. Adam and Eve were promised that God would walk with him in the cool of the day, that he would speak with him and walk with him hand in hand if they wanted him to. If they wanted to be near to him, he would be near to them. That is a central promise of all of scripture. And it goes from there, it goes into the life of Enoch. Enoch was promised that if he walked with God, God would literally walk with him. 
that, that it was given to Noah, that he was, it was given to Abraham and, and a lady named Sarah and to a man named Jacob and to another woman named Esther and to Jonah and to Job and to Joseph and to Moses and to David and to Amos and to a young lady named Mary and to another man named Paul. And the list goes on and on and on over and over. If you read any part of the scripture, the central promise is that you are not alone and that God will go with you. And that's like Merry Christmas. Here's your gift. It is not stuff. It is not more and more presence. It is the presence of God in your life. And somebody needs to really say amen to that because that is good preaching right there. That is what I'm talking about. Listen, God goes to Moses and he says, I will be with you. I will be with you in a cloud by day and I will be with you in a pillar of fire by night because I never want you to lose sight that I am with you. And he goes from there, he goes to a man named Joshua who was about to take in the people of Israel into the land that was promised to them. And he's got all these troops and they're scared spitless and they're about ready to go in the land. And then God says this, don't be terrified. Translation, don't be afraid. Because there's a promise that you need to understand and that I'm going with you into the land that I give you. And I'm gonna fight your battles with you. And I'm going to do in your life what you cannot do for yourself. And then he comes to a man named David. And, and, and he says, David, no matter where you go, David writes, from the highest of heights to the depths of the sea and to the darkest places of my life, you are still there, what does he say? With me. One time he, he writes it like this. He says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. What does he say, friends? He says, I will go with you. I will go with you. That is the central defining promise of all the scriptures. God sends manna, this bread from heaven to the people of Israel because they literally had nothing to eat. He, he gives them water. They're out in the wilderness. They're out in the desert experience. And God says to Moses, this is kind of weird. I don't even understand how this could happen. But God says to Moses, go tap on the rock and I'm going to give you water right out of the rock. Tap, tap, out comes the water. It was like God says, I want you to remember that I have never forgotten you. He says, go into this battle and I'm going to go with you. And God delivers them. He gives them miracle after miracle. His presence is always near. And listen, friends, it is because God is sticking a big, fat post-it note on the people of Israel's little forehead saying, don't you forget, I am always with you. Always. Amen? And, and Jesus he comes along and nobody modeled the presence of God more than Jesus, am I right? He lived in the presence of God. And just as he was making his, his departure from earth when all of his work was done, what does the scripture record his words to you and to me? He says, don't be afraid. I will go with you always, even to the ends of the earth. No matter how far you turn from me, no matter how far you run from me, no matter what you've done to screw it up, I am right there after you. I'm coming after you. I'm coming after you and I'm never gonna stop because this is what a father in heaven does. And some of y'all, you don't make this connection because your father was, he was like my father maybe. My father abandoned my family. And some of us in this room, we have a hard time understanding that we have a father who is not like any earthly father this world has ever known. We have a father who is good and always, 
always comes after us. As a matter of fact, if you read the end of the story and the end of the book, if you turn to the Revelation, to very, like, like the last page of the entire Bible, when it's all said and done, when sin's power is broken, when, when the bondage of our lives is set free, and, and when, when death has come to an end, when sickness has come to an end, and when all the junk of this world has finally come to an end, here is what the scripture writes. Here is what the scripture paints for people of faith like some of us in this room. It says this. Now, now, listen, now, the dwelling place of God is with what? Human beings. And he will be, live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be what? Come on, you're not helping me out. With them. He will be with us. He promises to go wherever we go. And they will be my people and I will be their God. You see, God's great gift to us is not this. It's not another vacation. He may give you all that. But God's great gift is himself. God says, I'm not going to be there, out there somewhere. I'm going to come and do life with you, in you never far from you. This is the great gift that he is with you, that he goes through life and you are never alone. Now this is sort of a weird thing because some people, maybe even in this room, some of you have a very easy time sensing God's presence in your life. There's just some people who it's just easy and it it sort of comes natural to them. Faith is easy for them. These are the ones who have like the bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. I'm like, really? Because sometimes I wonder where the heck he is, right? Right? And these are the people who go, God and I, we got this whole deal. And you know what? I applaud their faith. I mean, it's an amazing thing. There are some people who, who see what, it's like they see what we don't see. Y'all with me on this? It's like there's some people who, who know what we don't know, who hear what we don't quite hear. And we look at their faith and we go, man, I, I'm, I'm excited for them, I'm happy for them, but, but that's not quite me. Um, there is this psychological researcher, her name is Sophia Cavalletti, and she does some really interesting research. She researches early childhood spirituality, and she's got some incredible writings out there and some incredible findings about, uh, about this idea of, of people having this inward clock to know that there is a God. There's this inward presence that some people have that other people just don't seem to have. And in one of her books, she writes about doing this series of, of observations, and she chose some parents who were atheists, and um, she had them write their discourses down day after day, like almost like a blog, and keep track of what's going on in the home. And, and she very carefully noted that there, on several of these experiences, but one in particular that she writes about was a three-year-old child, almost four years old, who was raised from, from day one in an atheist home where there was no Bible, no church experience at all, no spiritual development for, toward this child in any way, shape, or form. And so uh, the father eventually reports about an interchange that happened between him and his almost four-year-old daughter. It was very interesting. Uh, He says, one day I'm sitting around the office and my daughter literally comes up to me and says, "Uh, where did the world come from? Now, you know, as a parent, that question eventually comes your way. I mean, that's kind of a normal question. It's like, you know, kids ask that kind of stuff. And so this parent was ready for this sort of a question. And and uh, the father says, I, I answered my daughter like 
like you think I would. I, I answered it, and purely he said, quote, naturalistic terms. I explained evolution. I explained the Big Bang. I explained, you know, how this is all natural cause and effect and all that kind of stuff. And, and he said it was like my daughter understood what I was saying, but she just simply opposed what I was saying. And then, fumbling for words, he said, well, there are some people, he says, I explained to my daughter, he says, there are some people who believe that all of, well, all of you and all of this came from some higher kind of spiritual unseen thing, and those people call that thing God. And then he records the reaction of his daughter. Very interesting. His daughter, he says, begins to jump up and down in sheer delight all across their living room and starts saying, I knew you were lying. I knew you were lying. I knew you were lying. And he's like, what? He goes, oh, I knew it was him all along because I talked to him and he talks to me. You see, some people, you know, some people have this kind of inward biological clock that seems to do a better job sensing and detecting the the presence of God, but let's be honest, most of us in this room, it's not quite where we live, is it? Most of us, if we're to be completely honest, we're like Adam and in Michelangelo's masterpiece, we're, we're interested in God. Uh, we even maybe want to know who God is. Maybe we've even done some seeking after God, but I'm gonna tell you something, friends. Most of us still sense that there is this gap between us and God, that there is this distance between us and God. Even if it's only a small distance, it is still there in our life. Check this out. Here's a, here's a close-up of Michelangelo's creation of Adam Pitcher. Um, there's this small gap, right? And I think this is where most of us live. There are moments in our life where, where we think, whoa, I'm getting it, I'm getting it. There are moments in our life where our spirit, right, starts to come alive and we feel like we're growing, we're growing closer to God, we sense that he's near. But if you're like me at all, you have these moments where it's up, 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 and it's feeling good, feeling good. It's like you're getting closer and closer and closer and you're almost there. And then all of a sudden, you can't explain it. It's like Monday hits and it's just gone. It's just gone. You thought you were moving in the right direction. You thought you were heading in the right direction. But all of a sudden, it's like a week later, I don't know, a month later, maybe a year later, it's like he's a million miles away. Anybody in the room want to be honest? And you've had moments where you go, I thought I was this close. But then it wasn't very long later that I felt there was a brick wall between me and God. And God seemed to be nowhere around. Friends, I don't know if this is you, but if God is real at all, I want to know him. If God is real at all, if there is a creator at all, I want to move my finger toward him. I want to somehow position my life to run into him, to know him, to do life with him, to walk with him. I don't want to just know about him, friends, listen to me. I want to know him. I want to know him. Dallas Willard, uh, he, he's passed away now. He's dead now. But uh, he's an incredible, incredible writer. He's a pastor. He's a theologian. And his writings have so affected my life over the years. It's incredible how much one book can you know, move somebody. You know? But Dallas Willard, he, he writes about when he was a young boy, how he lost his mother. His mother died when he was very, very young. And um, he said it was terrible. He, he, he would describe living with this sheer loneliness all the time 
that he could never quite find himself. He, he would talk about how he was terrified even to go to sleep at night. He was so lonely and so broken that he had said night after night, month after month, year after year, he got up and would go and, and, and ask his father if he could go sleep with his father, to lay in bed with his father. And of course, his father was gentle and gracious toward him and said, of course, you can come and, and sleep with me. He was just a little guy. But Dallas wrote that that was still not enough. He would say, as, as I would try to fall asleep, I could never sleep. I was so afraid and I was so lost and I was so lonely. He said, I would reach through the darkness and I would find my father's face. And then I would say, Daddy, Father, turn your face toward me. Is your face toward me? Is your face toward me? Because he wanted to know if his father's face was toward him. And then his father would say, yes, son, my face is towards you. I'm looking at you now. And Dallas said, that's when I could go to sleep. When somehow my father's face was turned toward me. Here's an interesting response to this that Dallas eventually wrote. He says, how lonely life is. Oh, we can get by in life with a God who does not speak or seems to be quiet. Many of us at least think we can do so. But it is not much of a life and tis certainly not the life God intends for us or the abundant of, abundance of life that Jesus came to make available to us. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want God's face toward me in the darkness of life. I want God right next to me. And if God's out there at all, I want to move toward him. Friends, he doesn't have to be out there. I'm trying to stir something inside of you to know that, listen, God is closer than you think. He can be right here with us. So let me take you on a quick journey into an Old Testament story that's found in the Bible. It's a story of a man named Jacob. Now, now Jacob was an interesting character. His granddaddy was a man named Abraham. Jacob eventually became the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Have you heard of the 12 tribes of Israel? Jacob became the father, the patriarch of the 12 tribes of Israel, but his granddaddy was a man named Abraham. We say Abraham was the spiritual father because God chose Abraham and gave him a promise and says, Abraham, I'm going to make your descendants so numerous. You're going to be blessed beyond measure. I'm going to create a whole new community where our people, where, where, where people will know who I am, a brand new way of living on earth. I'm going to give you the promise of an inheritance with God. And so we see that Abraham moved toward God. Abraham has a son. His son's name's Isaac. And Isaac, like his father, Abraham, moved toward God. But when you get to Jacob, it's interesting. Jacob was no spiritual giant. Jacob's heart wandered away from God. We see that Jacob did not move toward God, nor did he move toward the faith or the promise that was given to his father. And as a matter of fact, uh, Jacob, we, we, we learn, uh, had two sons. Uh, or Isaac, we learn, had two sons. Jacob and his brother's name was... Anybody? Esau. Esau. And it's interesting that they, were, they couldn't have been any more different. Uh, we, we learned that uh, Jacob um, wasn't liked too much by his own father, Isaac. Like, he literally says, I prefer my son Esau. Um, Esau, with all of his trouble, he had a hairy back, which is very, very strange. Uh, if you, some of you know the Bible, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, but, but he wasn't the brightest ball burning, but he was a hunter-gatherer. And this really impressed his father, Isaac. And so his Father Isaac literally chose Esau over Jacob. Pause. How do you think that does for family dynamics? Ruins things, doesn't it? Jacob is sort of this pansy kind of a guy. He's sort of this indoor kind of a guy. He's sort of a mama's boy a little bit. And this just pushes Esau 
or, uh, Jacob further and further away from his father. So much so that Esau and Jacob, these two brothers, they start fighting. They're always at each other. And eventually, eventually, Esau decides to literally to kill Jacob. And you may know the backstory of that. You see, Jacob deceived their father, tricked their father, and literally stole from Esau. Literally stole Esau's inheritance. And so this obviously ticks off Esau and says, I'm going to kill you. And what do you think Jacob does? Mama's boy. He runs. He runs. And literally he just takes off and gathers up a few things and takes off into the wilderness. And it's interesting. This is where we pick up the story because it says that that Jacob, as he's fleeing from his brother Esau, he comes to a certain place, which is a very interesting expression, a certain place. Um, if you do the backstory on this in Hebrew, it doesn't mean what you think it means. Like you think of a certain place, you think of very, very dynamic, very specific, he had to go there. It's actually the exact opposite. This expression in Hebrew, the original people thought a certain place means, ah, it's anywhere. Just, I, I don't even know. It's kind of weird. It's a weird expression, but it's like, hey, I just stopped somewhere out, outside of Toledo or something. You know what I mean? There's like nowhere in particular. It's not a good place. It's not a bad place. It's just a place. That's all I met there. But what's interesting is when, when Jacob is in this place, he has this dream, this, this vision. Here's a man who never sought after God, never ran after God. He's running from his family, and God meets him in a very unique way. It, it says that in this dream, God, he sees heaven open up and God lowers a ladder, lowers a staircase into the earth or onto the earth. And, and this is where we get the idea of Jacob's ladder. Anybody ever hear of it? Jacob's ladder, climbing Jacob's ladder, anybody? Y'all know what I'm talking about? This is where we get this expression from. And in, in this dream, Jacob says, I see God standing in the heavens and I see him, his angels coming back and forth to somehow interchange with humanity and he, and he sees all this. And then the craziest thing happens. God speaks to him in this vision. And this is what's recorded in the scriptures for us. Pay very close attention to this. He says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. And then he says this phrase, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. Now, I did a little study on that word wherever. It's an amazing little word. I figured out that it literally means wherever. Like anywhere. Like, wherever you run, he, like, God knows that he is running from his faith. He, God knows that he is running from his family. God knows that he is running from all that is good because he has done evil in this world. And God is saying, wherever you run, you will not be satisfied. And I'm going to still pursue you. I'm going to still run after you, no matter what. And so God is speaking to him. He says, wherever you go. And then it says this, very interesting. It says, when Jacob woke, awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. There is none, there is none other than the house, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gateway of heaven. And it says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep. Now, to me, this is very interesting. It says, Jacob awoke from his sleep. And you know that there can be different forms of sleep, Right? You understand this, right? Like there is the kind of sleep that when you lay your head down tonight, you're going to be out for seven or eight hours and you're like gone to the world, right? But that is not the only kind of sleep out there. You see, some of us in this very room, you have slept your way right through life. There isn't much going on in your soul. You, you think life is just cruise control for you. And there are some people in this room, if you're honest, you live like that for a long time until you awoke, until something happened that changed all that. 
until something crazy took you out of this sleep that you were living in. It's the kind of sleep that you're on cruise control. It's the kind of sleep that nothing's going on in your soul. And then all of a sudden you snap out of it. Something starts to stir inside of you. And it might be for some in this room, it's when your first baby was born. All of a sudden, like you were partying and you were like just living life and you're just trying to accumulate, accumulate, accumulate. And all of a sudden your baby's born and you realize that life is deeper now. Life is more complicated now. That there's something deeper you got to run after in life. And so life changed for you. It's like you awoke. You know what I'm talking about? For some, it was like a car accident. Maybe you were in a car accident in this room and like your life for a moment was hanging in the balance or maybe somebody you love was hanging in the balance and all of a sudden you realize that you were frail. You realize that you're not invincible, that one day you're gonna stand before God and so all of a sudden you're looking back over your life going, I'm not so sure I am who I want to be in life and you're going, I probably need to change a couple things in my life. It's like you woke up Anybody? Or, or maybe for some in this room is when your wife comes home one day and says, I'm leaving. Or your husband come home and says, I'm done. And you were just like in a slumber and you thought everything was fine. But it wasn't fine. And that was the moment, the moment that you woke up. And the Lord says this. Listen to this. This is an amazing thing. It says that he awoke from his sleep but the next line gets so interesting because the Lord God says, um, because, because he realized that God was in this place. And then it says this little phrase. This is so startling. He says, and I was not aware of it. God was there, but I was not aware of it. Somehow he had spent a lifetime around his father's faith and his grandfather's faith. And yet there was nothing going on in his soul. And he says, I was going through life, yet God was there, and I was not even aware of it. And apparently, friends, I don't know if this is true of you, but I think this is true. It says this, apparently it's possible for God to be present in your life, to be present with somebody, and for that somebody to not even recognize that God is near. You hear me? Is that true? Is it true that you can go through your life thinking God is somewhere else, that God is far away, and yet God is there. Apparently this was true for Jacob. He figured out that, that God was closer than he ever thought possible. This is Jacob's discovery. And what's interesting, it goes on to say that Jacob in this dream, uh, he realizes that God was there. He never realized that before. He had spent his whole life running. He realized all of a sudden that God is there. And, and then he names this place. It goes from no certain place. It's just kind of like out in the middle of nowhere, unimportant. And he gives this place a name. He calls this place Bethel. Bethel, which means house of God, or the place where God is present. It's transformed from a certain place where it was nowhere special to this place where God was with him. Now, in church growing up, um, any of you all sing the song, Climbing Jacob's Ladder, Climbing Jacob's Ladder? Oh, I'm so glad I'm not the only old person in the room. (laughs) The problem with that song is that we got it all wrong. Do you realize this? You see, because we all grew up, many of us grew up thinking that I'm climbing Jacob's Ladder. But if you were to read the scripture, it says nothing of the sort. The ladder was not put there for Jacob to climb to God, but it was put there for God to climb down to Jacob. It said that Jacob stayed on the earth and observed how God was moving toward him. You see, friends, the central theme of the scriptures 
is that we have a father who loves us enough to stop at nothing, who loves us enough to come to be with us. And all we have to do is lift a finger to hear him, to see him, to know him. This is the story of God. This is the story of the Bible. So what if it happens in our life that ordinary moments go from just being ordinary to Bethel moments? Now think about this for your own life. What if in your little house, it wasn't just a home, but it became Bethel, the place where God is present? What if in, 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 your, in your workplace, your little cubicle that's eight by eight and you spend eight hours of a day there and you go, man, this is the farthest place from God. What if that became Bethel to you? Because the story of God seems to be that wherever you go, he is with you. Wherever you go, that it can be the place where he's present, amen? What if the line you were working on just churning out parts all day long became Bethel for you? What if the very next email you opened up wasn't just another random note, but it was Bethel where you see God in everything and everywhere and every place? What if the next conversation you have? What if the next moment with your children? What if the next moment with your spouse, your sister, your brothers, your friends, people walking out of this little auditorium? What if the next time you sit in these seats? What if this time right now when you're sitting in these seats becomes Bethel for you? The house of God, the place where God is present. Do you think that would change things? you think that would move you in some way in life? Friends, God is closer than you think. God is here right now. When Michelangelo painted this picture, um, it expresses a spiritual reality. It, it says to you and to me that God is everywhere. God is flowing. God is near. And all we have to do is move toward him. Now, here's what I want to do to kind of wrap this up. I, I want to share um, part of the Christmas story to you. Um, there's, there's, there's the gospel of Matthew. It tells the story. It paints the picture of the life of Jesus and it records right from the very beginning what, what happened and what went on. And he's one of the witnesses that observes all this. And, and we're gonna lift just a small section of verses right out from the very middle of the Christmas story because I think we need to understand where this all goes. Um, this is found in the book of Matthew, chapter one. I'm gonna start in verse 21. Just read a couple verses for you and you need to help me out here. It says that she will have a... Son, so she will have a son, and you are to name him what? What's going to be his name? Jesus. So his name is Jesus, right? It says that you are going to have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Amen? Thank God. Thank God. Because if you're like me at all, um, you know, you know what you need saving from. You know where your heart wanders. You know what separates you from your creator. And it says that Jesus will save you from that. And then it says, all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's messages through the prophets. And then here's the verse 23. It says, look, the virgin will conceive a child. And that's like, whoo, that's out there. That's kind of really out there. It says that the virgin will conceive a child and she will give birth to a what? A son. And they will call him Emmanuel. But his name is what? It's, his name is Jesus. But they will call him Emmanuel, which means something. It means God is with us. What's his name? Jesus. What are they going to call him? Emmanuel. What's his name again? 
His name is Jesus. But, but, and what does the name Emmanuel mean, though? The, what do they call him? They call him Emmanuel. And what does Emmanuel mean? It means God is with us. It's like, hey, Jesus. Jesus is his name. Say, hey, Jesus, come and play some soccer with us. Hey, Jesus, would you like a cookie? Hey, Jesus, you want to come over for coffee? That's that's his name. But they called him Emmanuel. It's different. You see, because somehow when they saw him, when they intersected with him, when they they somehow connected with him, when they heard him, when they started to get close to him, they figured out that this kid named Jesus is is not a normal Jesus. You got to realize there was a lot of Jesus at the time. It was a very popular name. You, You realize this, right? It wasn't like it is now where like nobody would name, why would you name your kid Jesus today? That's crazy, right? But back then, everybody was named Jesus. But they didn't call him that. It was like a nickname that he got. What's a nickname? Nickname kind of describes who you are. You see, they named him Jesus, but they called him Emmanuel. It's like if you got a guy you work with and he's like real short, like a certain pastor in this church, you call him Shorty, right? And it's not like me and you just say, hey, Shorty, come on over here. We need some help. Hey, Shorty, we got to get these bricks out of here. Hey, Shorty, we got to hurry up and hustle this up. If you work with a guy who's got a big glowing red beard, you call him Red, I had an Uncle Red. We called him Red. That's what we called him. We said, hey, Red, get over here. Hey, Red, you want to eat dinner with us? Hey, Red, you want a coffee, right? It's a description. It's a nickname. It's a, it describes the moment. You see, friends, they named him Jesus, but when they figured out who he was, the warning was, or the word was early on, yeah, you're going to name him Jesus, but he's not any ordinary Jesus kid. When you see him, when you connect with him, you're going to be drawn to God in a different way, and it's going to be called Emmanuel, which means God, come on, with us. His name is Jesus, but it's God with us. It's God with us. Look at this picture one more time. This is a close-up of God reaching toward man. Let me tell you something. Jesus closed the gap even more. He came and he made his dwelling among us so that you would, so that you could, it would be impossible for you to miss him. He is God with us. Friends, this is Merry Christmas. This is the great present that God gives you. He gives you himself. He says, you do not have to be alone ever in this world. Come to him in faith. Move toward him, friends. My my hope is that you'll take another step toward him today. No matter who you are, or where you've been, if you're starting like way in the back somewhere and like spiritually, you're not even sure. You're like one foot inside of the church and you think the building's gonna fall. Or maybe you've been coming here front and center for 10 years. I hope I've aroused this passion inside of you that you can be with God because he is already near to you. Reach toward him. No matter what goes on in your life right now, 
He is not far. You do not have to be alone. Lift a finger toward him. Father, we come and um, sort of just bow our hearts before you. God, I can't even imagine what is, uh, what is stirring in the hearts of our people right now. You know, when we, we even see this video earlier, and young lady Danielle, you, you have no idea what somebody is going through in this room right now. Maybe your own family doesn't really know what you're going through. Maybe the person you came with doesn't even really know what you're going through. The scripture says you have a God who loves you and knows every moment of your day. You are not alone. So God, would you speak into our lives? God, would you speak into our soul? God, would you make yourself unmistakable, unmissable in our lives right now? God, help those of us who tend to run an awful lot away from you. Help us to stop just long enough so you could run into us. God, would you speak to your children right now? God, would you do a work inside of us? God, help us this Christmas not to miss your presence in our life. Draw near to us, God. And help us to draw near to you. My brothers and sisters, maybe you just need to ask for the grace of God once again in your life. Maybe you just need to say, God, um, I want you close. I invite you to take front and center part of my life, my heart, my mind, my soul. I'm sorry for pushing you away. Maybe there's something really broken in your home right now or your life. My guess is that you push God away from that part of your life. Invite him back there. My brothers and sisters, I pray that you would know the grace of God. That his grace would fall on you. That it would move you. That it would change you. That his grace would give you strength. That his grace would give you hope. pray that you would walk with him and that he would walk with you. I pray that he is near to you. And maybe you need to pray with somebody tonight. Maybe God is stirring something inside of you. And so uh, before you get out of here, maybe you just want to come and to the front here and to my left, to your right. Um, Maybe you just need somebody to listen. Maybe you just need somebody to pray with you. Maybe you just need somebody to listen out loud as you pray. I don't know. But if God is doing a work, let him. Let him. In Jesus' name, amen.